And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening on this rotating globe, which is in a little bit of uh, need of help this evening, this morning, or this afternoon. In case you haven't noticed, there's some things going on on planet Earth, and we're going to be talking about them this evening with my special guest, Sean Stone. Now, Sean, besides having a very famous name, has made a reputation for himself in several different venues investigating things that we call conspiracies. How did that word ever get this bizarre, strange connotation? Is it is it true that the CIA years ago, when conspiracy was beginning to kind of percolate through the culture, decided to um, uh, create this diversion by making any theory that is not politically correct or they don't think should be followed up on, et cetera? Did they... Do they all decide somewhere in some secret meeting it was going to be called a conspiracy uh, model? Is that a conspiracy? To, anyway, we're going to kind of go through some of this tonight. Um, what I want to do before we get into the heart of the program is to uh, uh, talk to you about a couple of important and positive developments. Um, according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, of course, is the international expert from the National Health Institutes uh, regarding this pandemic. Uh, he used to be at the CDC. He has become a leading uh, authority on, on these kind of outbreaks going back uh, decades. He is basically saying that we're not, this is the good news, that we're not on the same coronavirus trajectory as Italy. And it will be important and very interesting, of course, to see if his uh, prediction is is uh, grounded in fact, because if you look at the curves, they look awfully similar so far. In another bit of good news, uh, item number two, and if you want to see where these stories are, let me tell you again how to get there. You go to our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com. That's where you can find us on the internet worldwide. I think we're in 190-some countries. If you look at our little spinning globe tonight, you'll see little blinking dots of light listeners in cities all over the world, which is good because we need to get the word out on a whole bunch of stuff. And the fact that our program is, um, shall we say, increasing in listener uh, capacity is a very interesting development. In fact, last night we had such an assault of listeners that at some times Robert uh, thought that maybe we were under attack because we've been under consistent attack, but there are ways algorithmically to tell the difference. They tell me. So last night we had a major spike in new audience members. So now what you guys need to do, if you're listening is join club 19.5. The only way this show is supported is through that incredibly modest subscription price um, in club 19.5. So if you want to keep this information on the air, if you want to keep us coming into your self-isolation or quarantine locations, gosh, all the new language we have to learn, then I would strongly advise a membership in Club 19.5. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of past programming to go through. You will not run out. And it's all kinds of interesting, um, shall we say, developments over the last several years that you're going to want to track. So by all means, you, you definitely want to do that. Okay. Um, 
So what you want to do is you want to go to the other side midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says New World Order, my guest at the top, Sean Stone, and just scroll down on that page, or you can hit what we call the fast links, which are right under the um, uh, banner there, right under my little pricey summary of tonight's show. Hit Richard. That will take you to the first items. Item number one is the um, uh, news story on Anthony Fauci saying that this site might actually, thank God, not be as severe as Italy. Item number two right under it, um, there's a Nobel laureate, and let me get you his proper name because this is important. There's a Nobel laureate who won the Nobel Prize uh, a couple of years ago. His name was Michael Levitt. He's a Stanford biophysicist who began analyzing the COVID cases worldwide in January. He correctly calculated and predicted that China would get through the worst of its coronavirus outbreak long before many other health experts uh, began to see similar trends. He is now foreseeing a similar outcome in the United States and the rest of the world, and you might want to read that. He says, we need to control the panic in the grand scheme. This is a direct quote. He says, we are going to be fine. Item number three. Go back to radio with pictures. Number three. This drug that we've been talking about for the last uh, several days, uh, chloroquine, which was developed back in 1945 by the U.S. Army to fight malaria and has been used in a number of other situations to fight drugs which are not parasites, which are not spores, which are not fungi, but which in fact are viruses. It turns out in a number of trials, they're not very large as yet, but the uh, consistency is very reassuring. Uh, Chloroquine actually seems to have two effects. One is if you get uh, COVID-19, it will really help ameliorate the symptoms It kills the virus. It basically short circuits its replication mechanism inside the body, so we are told. And if you're in bed with this darn thing, it will significantly shorten the time that you're in bed. If you're in that damaging age group, that senior age group, where the um, fatality rate goes up dramatically, I mean really dramatically, it seems to have very efficacious effects there. But even more interesting, at least for me, because of the panic that's circulating well beyond the scope of this disease, it seems to have a prophylactic effect, which means if you take, you know, a few milligrams and the dosage is um, going to be part of the prescription you get from your doctor, you only have to take it a couple of times a week and then you wait. And it's not something you want to take consistently every day, high doses, it has very negative effects if you take too many um, grams of this stuff. So that's contraindicated. But in moderate amounts, in the appropriate dosages, it appears to really have a positive impact. And I want to say that up front because people are needing, really needing hope in this rather desperate time. And this is something which gives us real solid hope. Um. I'm looking down, and I think Kintia has posted uh, something else in my head. So I'm going to save item number four for later in the program when Georgia joins us. Um, but item number five, um, we love rescue stories, 
And the question is why? Well, what I have in number five is an incredible rescue story, which I think is emblematic of what's going on all around the country during this potential crisis. For those of you who were not alive during the flight of Apollo 13, who weren't even born during the time of Apollo, Apollo was the national program to take men and women to the moon, actually just men, and bring them home again before the Russians, before the Soviets. We had all kinds of very successful missions, and one that really stood out as a bizarre mission where, unless everything had gone correctly, it could have ended in horrible tragedy. And what I want you to do is I want you to go to the link, and I want you to do some Googling on Apollo 13, which will tell you the entire story. We don't have time tonight. But the emblematic part of the Apollo 13 mission was, even though NASA does innumerable simulations and tests, they had never simulated key aspects of the Apollo 13 mission, which, if they had not been solved, these problems would have killed the crew. They would have died of, of um, carbon dioxide poisoning. They would have literally gone to sleep in a cabin increasingly filled with CO2, and they would have never woken up. To counteract that, they, need to make, they needed to make modifications to the onboard um, carbon dioxide uh, mechanisms, which uh, basically encapsulated it and kept it away from the rest of the atmosphere. And to do that, they had to do mechanical things. They had to make systems between the lunar module and the Apollo command module compatible, and they wound up using things like scissors, mission um, mission briefing documents, flight plans, the kind of stiff exterior cardboard that these came mounted in, duct tape, and um, uh, plastic hose from some of their spare supplies on board, and they created a do-it-yourself, oh yes, also there, there was a sock involved. Forgot about that, thank you. Um, they created a do-it-yourself system to keep themselves alive. What's the analogy? What's going on all over the country right now, because it turns out that our incredibly sophisticated technological manufacturing infrastructure is not up to producing simple masks and gowns and face shields to protect hospital workers from being exposed to the virus. I mean, that sounds incredible. If you wrote that in script, no, no uh, Hollywood, you know, film company would, would accept it because that's, that's absurd. This is the United States. It turns out we have farmed out all of this manufacturing of basic, crucial stuff to the rest of the world among other places, ironically, to China. And they're not exactly in a position right now to meet the industrial demands of billions of these articles, gloves, face masks, uh, visors, gowns, whatever. So what hospitals have done, done to, have, have turned to is they've basically gone back to the Apollo 13 model. They are asking a variety of individual citizens and companies like garment companies, dressmakers, whatever, to in lieu of what they're doing, 
in, in lieu of manufacturing or creating more product to eventually sell when this economic crisis passes, they're asking them to turn to a la World War II and basically make gowns and masks and gloves and PE, PPEs, you know, personal protection equipment, all that stuff. And they're doing it. And so what a lot of people see as a detriment, the fact that we were not prepared, the fact that a lot of people are looking to the dark side of this, oh, my God, we're not prepared. What I'm seeing is the flip side, which is that people, ordinary people, are turning to in droves all over the country, in fact, all over the world. And they're doing what they can to step up and to contribute in this crisis. And it's bringing us, if not physically, certainly spiritually and in terms of consciousness closer together because we're all in this together and the watchword is as Ben Franklin said many 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 decades ago if we don't all hang together we are going to hang separately oh by the way it's the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13 so um, I, I, I thought that was kind of intriguing that this is coming full circle and the ingenuity of the American experience is in full measure, in full view. So I'm kind of one of those guys tonight who I'm looking at this and I'm saying, well, the story seems to be that the glass is half full. It's not just half empty. With that, let me turn to my guest this morning, Sean Stone. Um, you probably don't need me to really introduce you to who Sean Stone is because he's the son of a very famous uh, movie director the interesting thing is that Sean has developed his own investigative pro profile, his own contacts, his own outlets, his own media. He worked with um, the former governor of the state of what was Wisconsin, I believe, on a television show having to do with political and economic conspiracies. For several years, I'm not sure, we'll find out whether he still has it, but he had his own show as co-host of a, of a show on RT that Robin would not miss a single, you know, edition of. It was called Watching the Hawks, which I thought was a kind of a cute and clever title. And they covered an all, awful lot of very interesting stuff. So without further ado, let me bring on Sean Stone. You are on the other side of midnight. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Are you on Skype or on the phone? On the phone? On Skype? Oh, okay. Because I guess for some reason it dropped. Um, I gave you a totally inadequate introduction because, frankly, I know almost nothing about your extraordinary life. So let's start at the beginning. Um, you're the, you know, the kid of a very famous guy. How did that affect you growing up? Did did that really impact your idea that the world is not as simple as most of us think? <laughs> That's the one way to put it. Well. Uh, I mean, I can't speak for anyone else's reality, but I can speak to the idea that, uh, yes, I mean, I grew up with a lot of, let's say, the privilege of education uh, and alternative education at the same time. So at one level, um, you know, I was able to be exposed to projects like JFK, right, at seven years old and, you know, the untold history of the United States uh, given books by uh, William Blum about the CIA's black operations as a kid, understanding in high school already 
that there was a deep state, essentially, uh, you know, alternative to what people believe when they watch the news. They think the president makes every decision and Congress, uh, you know, the congressional bills are, you know, are, are, uh, upstand- are written by upstanding gentlemen in Congress, all this nonsense. So I, I had a sense that this was all off, that there was a, a deeper, deeper, darker side of American history, right? Uh, particularly the CIA and, and uh, other organizations that, op- that operate, um, let's say, outside off book and outside of most uh, mainstream media. <laughs> so it's understanding that I sort of get delving into the uh, secret history of, you know, uh, books by Jim Mars, for example, and David Icke really going into the farther realms, the farther reaches of our own, you know, our own understanding and beyond, obviously, as, as you know, what, what is out there outside of our perceiving our realm of perceiving what is beyond this third dimensional reality. So that was, uh, you know, that began from my father, but I would say I went beyond, beyond him. Well, you know, the old, the old cliche, you can lead a horse to water. In other words, there had to be something in you that resonated with this, right? Well, sure. There's something, uh, in me that is non-human that began long (laughs) before the human story. And, is is aching to remember and to understand what that is because I think if we if we're honest with ourselves we know that we're more than this 3D reality and uh, and most people are just scared of of admitting it publicly. Hmm. So how did this you know I mean being exposed to the film JFK at seven must have had a seminal effect on you. I mean it had a seminal effect on the rest of the planet. So it certainly <laughs> you couldn't have missed. How did it, how did it shape your education? The things you wanted to look into the, the doors mm-hmm. you wanted to crack open the kind of, mm-hmm. in other words, how did it shape your life? Uh, totally, totally transformed my life. Um, I, I mean, again, I, it was to say that, you know, I've spent my entire life, uh, researching conspiracies or something. But as I said, I was in high school already um, intrigued by alternative history, by the secret histories that were unknown to most high school kids, right? That were not, um, you know, talked about in, in, in normal history class, for example. And so I was one challenging and posing the questions and posing the things that were, uh, you know, outside of the norm. Um, oh, you must then, have had uh, fun in high school. Wow. <laughs> no, not necessarily. I'm not I'm being very, very, very <laughs> facetious, okay? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. It was I mean look, there were there were good teachers and there were people that were responsive, but um the truth was that it was isolating to uh to understand the dark side. Now hang on, let, let me ask this question. Did you go to Hollywood High? No, no, I went to Brentwood. Okay. But it's the same kind of culture where it's it's it has nothing to do with the world, with history, with future, with past, with big. It's all about tiny. You must have really been isolated. Isolated is one way to put it. I mean, I, I wasn't entirely isolated because I did have my father and I did have a good group of friends that I, I spent time with. But I, I really bonded a lot with my dad in high school. I was uh, spent weekends with him and I really enjoyed that conversation i think it was i was more mature than my years um by the time i was 15 16 and i was you know going off i went to um somalia and, at 16 in the summer to go work for save the children oh that's in somaliland cool. um and you know i was working with uh 
another organization here in South Central and Watts and places like that the following year. I mean, I was very interested in, I was interested in the world of, of adults. I was interested in, you know, work and, and what's happening at, at the level of how do we change, how do we change things for the better? And, uh, you know, I did have an ideal idealism about me going into these things. And uh, over time, it became more of a realism, understanding the NGOs and a lot of the system is designed, um, you know, basically to perpetuate systems of, uh, well, power, let's call it the system of, call it the, the pyramid of power, right? The money ultimately goes back to the top into a smaller and smaller collective of hands. That's why our economic systems are so rigged in a sense that um, we see the you know, thousand corporations or whatever it is that have you know almost half the world's wealth. It's it's insane. Yep, yep. So when did you figure out that you had talent to be an actor? I don't know that I have talent to do anything. I just do what I like. <laughs> <laughs> you don't wait. There's a, you know you can you don't wait for people to tell you what you can do in life. You just do what you want to do. Right. And. Uh, you know, you, but if you, if you're lousy, you it's quickly going to come to a can, right? yeah. But if you're lousy, it quickly comes to a bad end. So obviously, you were not lousy. So when when what was your first acting job? I mean, I, to be honest, it was it was Salvador probably. I mean, the Wall Street. I had my first lines in Wall Street, and uh, you know, Gordon Gecko's son, Michael Douglas's son in that film, and mm. I was two years old, and I was in JFK as uh, Costner's kid, and. And then I didn't really like acting as a kid. I was more interested in um, writing and storytelling as, uh, you know, more on the creative side of the writing side. Uh, but in my 20s, I, I did some acting. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm an actor. I just, I would say I act when I felt it was the right moment, you know, kind of like uh, Orson Welles or Shakespeare mm. or something. You know, it's like, you do, you know, you act in here and there, but it doesn't, I don't consider myself a full-time actor. Okay. So would it be accurate to describe you as an investigative journalist? Uh, not at all. That's the last thing I am. <laughs> okay. I've never been a journal. I've never been a journalist. I've uh, I've interviewed a lot of people over the years, but um, you know, I, I interviewed them as a host and uh, sort of interested in in different stories and including your story. You know, you're someone that I would have interviewed if if I still had my Buzzsaw show going. Um, but no, I'm not a journalist. I'm not an actor. Uh, I'm more of a, how would you say? <laughs> That's what I'm Ren asking. Ren <laughs> a renaissance man. I mean, no. Oh, I mean, so time. you're a, you're, you're a yeah. generalist. I'm a generalist. I'm this, a is a, this is a show. This is a family of generalists. We have all kinds of interesting generalists who gather here. Um, ah. Okay, so you're a generalist. So when did you – I mean, the, the the shows you just mentioned, Buzzsaw, and the one that Robin loved, which was your watching the Hawks, how did that come about? Conspiracy theory. I did the show with Jesse Ventura uh, the third season with mm -hmm. Tyrell and Jesse. Tyrell's Jesse's son, and uh, Tyrell and I hit it off, and we were sort of co-hosting that season. And uh, we had a great time in covering uh, secrets around uh, – Time travel, reptilian agenda, uh, Skinwalker Ranch, things like that. And so we uh, carried it on with Buzzsaw, basically, and that became an interview program. I did hundreds of episodes, really interesting characters that I interviewed over the years. And uh, that became Watching the Hawks, which was uh, on RT with uh, Tyrell and myself. Um, and that was more sociopolitical, whereas Buzzsaw was more, you know, the outer limits. Mm. Okay, let me ask you this question. This is going to put you on the spot. I want to warn you. 
<laughs> How come you guys never asked about what NASA's hiding in the solar system? Well, you know, what you mean on conspiracy theory or on bus or on what? Any of them. Nobody called me. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't produce uh, I, I didn't produce uh, conspiracy theory with Jesse Ventura. So if I if I had, obviously, I would have had a lot more say. As I said, I've, I've wanted to um, interview you and talk about the the Mars mysteries for a long time. Uh, and, you know, I don't know why. Just sometimes you don't have the connection, the one person that's going to connect you. And as it now stands, I don't have Buzzsaw as a show. So I was excited when, he, when I heard that you wanted to interview me on your show because I'm really interested to talk with you about uh, about Mars and the, the ancient history there. Hmm. You should have listened to last night's show. In fact, you can listen to all the archives because we've done, we've done an awful lot of stuff on this show regarding that research that is probably not generally widespread in the mainstream. It will be, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not there yet. So, in fact, an aspect of tonight's discussion does involve, for me, an extraterrestrial set of possibilities because I'm looking at what's going on on the planet right now, and I'm looking at all the conspiracy theories. And I'm thinking none of them are as big as what we're seeing going on. And that leaves only uh-huh. one one thing left, which is this is not being modulated by terrestrial power centers. This is something Thank I you. believe bigger. What do you think? Yes. Oh. Oh, now now we're starting to speak my language. <laughs> <laughs> I only I only I only look at things from Again, you know, non-3D perspectives. When I when I look at events, when I look at uh, major demarcations, you know, you start to see the synchronicities appearing. You start to see the the prophecies coming into fulfillment. You have to recognize uh, an agenda, not just an agenda, a script that's been written in the consciousness of of, of existence long before we incarnated into this human form. And so, it's not necessarily when you talk about alien and not alien. It's like I am alien. I know my soul is not from here. I don't know who, maybe there are some humans that are purely earthborn or that don't have souls that go back to the stars, but I think a lot of us do. So a lot of us understand the alien thing and it's not, it's not as weird as, as people. Is it the alien be. thing or is it the ET thing? Cause for me, there's a major well, difference. Of course. I mean, multidimensional is, is the way to look at it. a lot of these beings, multidimensional, not necessarily, and well, yes, extraterrestrial. But again, I I think that we began in the stars. I don't think that we're Earth-born, as they say. We're not hmm. entirely Earth-born. Um, okay, I think I could kind of get get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> we are actually coming up to a break here, so um, why don't uh, why don't we take a pause? My guest this morning is Sean Stone. We're talking about, um, well, we're talking about how do you look at the world? Sean, with an incredible opportunity, had a front row seat for, uh, shall we say, uh, developments that are not exactly linear. They're not exactly the way you would think of them. You're on the other side of midnight. When we come back... We're going to talk specifics, including, is this whole coronavirus thing not really from here at all? My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. back everyone sorry about the little hiccup <clears throat> there are little things called switches wow none never told me good morning once again my guest this morning is sean stone we're talking about well we're talking about the c word conspiracies and before we get sean to this whole coronavirus thing which frankly reeks of some kind of conspiracy meaning it's not accidental, it's not from nature, it's not from bats, it's something much more intriguing, if you want to use that term. Let's, let's talk about, the what was the first big conspiracy that you kind of wrapped your head around and you felt you could uh, contribute toward? <clears throat> that I thought I could contribute. Meaning investigated, found, a, found, found some, a piece of data that other people had missed, that kind of thing. Thing. Right, right, right. Well, again, I mean, I never considered myself an investigative journalist, so it wasn't so much as as what I contributed as much as uh, actually, no, that's not necessarily true. There was something I didn't even think about. Um, what got me into a lot of the supernatural stuff was, you know, I did love I love David Icke's work since seventeen. I think I read uh, Biggest Secret, and you know, I was always fascinated by the multidimensional side of things, right? Like what is really happening with this shape-shifting, the reptilian agenda, that concept, right? The idea that there's alien reptilians and other species, you know, greys, mentoids, all these other species that are here. Um, but it was like there was a soul resonance in me that remembered something and, and connected to these things. Well, along my travels after college, um, having studied and read, I ended up experiencing the paranormal and the supernatural firsthand, and uh, that became my first film that I directed and uh, was called uh, Greystone Park. And it came out in 2012, but it was sort of amidst the found footage craze, if you recall, when they had all those silly films like Paranormal Activities 16 or whatever coming out. And uh, it was sort of ignored because, you know, Greystone was a true story of what we did experience as we were going into these haunted places, these haunted mental hospitals. Greystone is a very famous haunted mental hospital in uh Jersey. It was operational for almost 100 years. Thousands of bodies were buried there. People had experienced all kinds of torture, you know, uh, extreme experiences of uh, pressure baths and electroshock and lobotomy. And what we found was exploring these places was how much of a portal they had become, these, ha- these mental hospitals, where 
the patients had maybe brought their own shadows and traumas and entities, you know, from the lower astral realms, as they say, into the place. And all of a sudden it became like a portal to the dark side. And so you'd find a lot of uh, evidence of Satanists that would go there and worship and like use these, uh, these buildings as, uh, feasting grounds or something, you know, for their so, rituals. So did you do on-camera stuff and EVP and magnetic magnetometers and all that to kind of chase who might still be haunting this facility? No, no, we didn't even need to because, uh, you know, it's something you can feel. I've seen, I saw possession, you know, people just getting overtaken by, by a spirit and just their shape, their shape, their, their shape, their, their face, everything, their whole expression, their, their demeanor, the behavior of shifts, just like that. It was really fascinating. We got a lot of uh, stuff on camera. I mean, ultimately there's a documentary that I still haven't put out that actually has the real experiences, but Greystone was a fictionalized version, but there are some real things in Greystone because we did shoot in some of the real places. And uh, we got a lot on camera from, you know, even though we were fictionalizing it to make it a drama, dramatic, dramatic, you know, dramatize the experience and try to explain to people how the paranormal phenomenon, supernatural phenomenon can't just be considered it's not about EVPs. It's not about um, something external. It's an internal thing because as you go wait, into wait, wait. fear, what do you what do you mean internal? In internal, in the sense that it's there is no external reality. So it's like as you go into fear, the dark places of your own mind, the dark uh, uh, thoughts, the dark energies within you resonate with in, with with the outer experience, and so it goes hand in hand. It's like a mirror. It's a reflection, right? And so this place, in a sense, it's like the more you go into fear, the more it manifests dark energy and, and things happen. It becomes like a storm of, of darkness. And that's what I... So you're saying with. it's more like a resonance thing. Yes, a resonance, precisely. Hmm. So when Art Bell, of course you know him, yeah. used to have those people on that would do these magnetic recordings, the EVP, what are they recording? Are they recording the observer's own mind imprinting on the tape, that kind of thing? Uh, I mean, if you're saying like you're, they're capturing something on camera? Yeah, or, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's not to say that... And, no, and sound, and sound. That, right, but I'm, what I'm getting at is that the resonance that... It's, it's, it's like... It's almost like electricity, right? What frequency? What frequency are we resonating at? So, you okay, know, I'm, I'm, let me fear. try to understand this. Are right. you saying that the, yeah. if you have the wrong consciousness... And you go into one of these environments where there's been unimaginable suffering and horror and human tragedy, that that literally, if you're of the wrong mindset, can open a door, a portal, and similar resonant consciousness comes through because you're the one opening the door? In a sense, yeah. In a okay. sense. That's, that's one way to put it. Yeah, and that's why it's so important to go in these places with. Um, I found, you know, with faith, with faith, I really found the purity of faith and intention by being challenged by the darkness of it, by the fear engendered by these places, by the, as you say the suffering. Suffering and sorrow creates a lot of uh, low low feeling, right? Low feeling of of depression, of anxiety, of of aggression, uh, anger, hatred. So the idea is to raise your frequency and, and come with love and. Uh, blessing and all the it does it does I find uh, change you can change you can bless a place you can change the resonance of a place that's been uh, contaminated. See, this is really intriguing, and I'll get to why I think it's intriguing in a moment. But let me let me just kind of you know continue trying to understand this. 
you're not saying that real dark entities, consciousness does not exist. You're saying right. that they can't get in unless we're predisposed to allow them to resonate with those dark energies. Am I right? Sure. Yeah, in a sense. I mean, the microcosm, macrocosm concept. It's like we are a reflection of, our, of the world around us, right? And so we all have the darker emotions. We all have the lower frequencies. But the question is how, how much do we work through to clear them? How much do we work through to release them, to rise and the alchemical journey i believe is to clear out and to go through the dark night to then rise up and into you know into the light essentially right into your golden nature see and, i i expected john yeah. to have some ahas as we had this conversation this morning <laughs> but you've given me an incredible one right at the top of the show because <laughs> if you stand back let's say about a quarter million miles and look at the earth from the moon with what's going on on this planet tonight, which is that everybody is being panicked and driven to incohate fear mm-hmm. on a planetary scale, is something wicked trying to come through? Mm-hmm. I open. Pan was the god of, uh, you know, the ancient uh, chaos a little bit. He was a trickster, mischief god, right? Peter Pan was modeled on him. Aleister Crowley was uh, worshipped, you know, Pan. He wrote a poem to Pan, Io Pan. Pandemonium, pandemic panic all comes from him. (laughs) Mm. How interesting. All right, so we're looking at a big, big, big planetary agenda. Now, the other missing piece, if these were normal times, Sean... This probably wouldn't work, but we're not in normal times. In the models that I've been working on, if you followed my work, you know there's this physics, and it's cyclical. Mm. It changes over time. It changes with the yuga cycles, with the processional cycle. That's how it's modulated. And we've been saying for years that we're coming up to the time when we're going to have that nodal point in the physics we haven't had for 25,920 years to be precise. And this is a window when something or someone is trying to change the future for the worse. Mm. And this whole thing looks to me, we're going to bring on uh, our resident metaphysician, Georgia Lambert, in the third hour. She worked with uh, Manly Hall and many other interesting folks. It's It's looking to me like this is this is the big how do we get them and of course the antidote is all that positive stuff that people are exemplifying where they don't want to be got yes they're afraid but they're turning their fear into active things they can do in terms of supporting people the weaker among us those that are more sensitive more fragile that are looking for needs to in other words the sense of humanity rising to help each other, I think, is equally as strong as the fear. Mm-hmm. And that's well, the good news. Prevails. Yeah. <clears throat> love prevails. Um, well, it should. I mean, In every script it should. But as, yeah. as McCoy said to Spock one night, he said, I have found, Mr. Spock, that good only wins if it's very, very careful. Remember that line? Hmm. Well, I wasn't a Trekkie, but <laughs> oh. take your word for it. 
<laughs> no, but uh, love prevails. I mean, it's it's the theme of the uh, book I just put out, an audible book called Desiderata, and it's about that exact journey of you know separation, the fear, the the loneliness, the anger, the, all the different emotions that we go through in our search for love, and uh, and ultimately, you know, we are here on a journey where we've forgotten our true selves, our true souls, but. I don't. I, I don't take. I don't take these 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 uh, shadows to heart. I don't take the darkness to heart. That's the thing. You can't. You know. You, the, the the shadows. I believe the dark is always there to help us, to challenge us, to rise, to become the light. You see. That's well. That's what the darkness is here for. It's necessary. It's part of this this earthbound journey that we've chosen to experience. Um, we're here to be challenged. We're here to, yes, face our fears and recognize ultimately that they are our own shadows. So are those things out there? They're out there, but ultimately they're only really reflections of us, that which is within us. And when we want to, when we're ready to really face ourselves and to, to uh, embrace that, which we maybe thought was separate from ourselves, we'll realize that there's only oneness. So you use this, this, uh, this facility, what was the name of it again? Corn. Which one? Greystone? Greystone, Greystone. I should remember Greystone. It's a very famous uh, fictional... Um, I think it was the mansion of Bruce Wayne, I think. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it was... You're thinking of Greyskull, maybe. No. Yeah. Uh, Greyskull was in He-Man, but Greystone, there was a manor. Wasn't it Greystone Manor yeah, or something? Yeah, but it, yeah. it wasn't... Uh, you know, my Grayson, Dick Grayson. Well, listen, Greystone is a fascinating concept. It was in the Necronomicon as the location that uh, the mad Arab stumbles upon. Oh, Lovecraft. Gray stone okay. in Lovecraft. And he finds the gray stone and the, and the black magicians are doing magic and they're conjuring a, a snake demon from the gray stone. And that's where he has his initiation into uh, what is, what is real in this world, which is magic and uh, black magic, uh, ancient gods and things that we thought were, you know, that was, Oh, that we put that aside when we evolved our new form of science, but actually, you know, science may have replaced religion, but it's a, it's equally as dangerous <laughs> because if, if any all these forms, religion or science, takes away that which is life, life is magical. Life is the miracle. Life is is the thing that's in the moment that you can't uh, turn into a, a prescription or a free pass or say like you know we we have the answers and we can control it. No, life is uh, life is more spontaneous. It's like fire. You know, you can't. You can, you can have a certain understanding of it, but it always is going to surprise you. And I think uh, that's where, you know, we're moving now in this in this new generation. I'm talking about like the you know the uh, the Corona and stuff. I'm just worried about people believing science so readily, but because it's like the new priesthood. Oh, we don't know what the heck you're talking about. We don't know what you know how to understand what a virus is. We don't understand the body at all. So let's just trust the scientist because he's obviously gone to school. The doctor's gone to school longer than I have, so he must know. And meanwhile, it's like this whole illusion. Well, the, the question is, just like the is it isn't what he knows, it's what he or she can tell us because academia is full of do's and don'ts and there's a lot of brave people that would like to write about the truth and they look at their bank balance and they look at their tenure and they decide not to. I mean, to me, the exactly. scientific method is crucial, but you got to follow it. And following means you publish what you find. You don't decide, oh, that's not going to be good for my career. Yes, that's a certain, certainly an aspect is the, is the, uh, 
they say that the financial side of science, right? Who's underwriting these studies? Who, you know, the whole um, peer-reviewed study process. You know, who's underwriting the universities? Well, we know this is the financial oligarchy that endows these universities and essentially um, steers them. The foundations steer them in directions they want uh, them steered. We've seen that for over, you know, well over a hundred years since the days of Darwin and the, a little bit before. But really, it's that um, that mentality that. You know, I would say even going back to the days of Robert Flood, actually, probably in the, in the 1600s, when Flood was fascinated by hermetics, you know, and and uh, alchemy and things like this. I mean, Newton was too, but that was never considered uh, kosher, I guess, by the uh, the establishment. Even though all the Masons and the people that were really running these scientific schools understood it, and that's the point. There's the esoteric side, which is not acceptable to well look the at look, they don't, they look don't at, give the profane that knowledge look at look at queen elizabeth her entire reign was founded on occult magical power and technology john, I mean, d. john d yeah yeah and the new atlantis and you know for francis drake and i mean that's how the, that was where this extraordinary experiment you know the united states came from mm-hmm. the, yeah the new atlantis yeah and that's why we're supposed to be the vehicle to carry people through the planet, through, I believe, what we're now in. Because this is a major, major moment in planetary history. This is not trivial. And I'm so tired of people, certain people, won't name, mention any names, your friends out there, but I'm so tired of them trivializing this because they're missing the awesome thing that's going on and how we, meaning people, have to take control of it and use it as an opportunity. Well, what happened? You, I mean, I, I, uh, I want to ask you the question a little bit. What happened on Mars? Do you think? <laughs> because this is this is a similar moment. I mean, I've, I've always seen America at the moment like Atlantis and like Mars, where we can implode, we can destroy ourselves, we can our ambitions can ultimately be our hubris can be our undoing, right? Um, yep. Well, the brief model is that many, many billions of years ago, someone came here and decided here'd be a great place to create a, a kind of a garden. And so they rearranged the planets of the solar system. Have you noticed, if you read any of the astronomical literature, that finally, after all these years of Copernicus and Galileo and everybody saying, oh, the Copernican principle, you know, we're just average, average, average. No, the solar system, at least in this galaxy, is unique. We found nothing like it. And this is so affirming to my model, which says someone came here, they redesigned it so it would support life, our form of life, and then set the experiment loose and all hell broke loose. And we're living now in the shadow of epical events 65, 66 million years ago which changed the destiny of the entire solar system and intelligent consciousness within what used to be the garden. And in 65 million years, Sean, in my analysis, for some reason, it has not been fixed, meaning someone likes it the way it is, and they either are prohibiting it being fixed or... Its involvement is part of the process of the academy, the school, the experiment, whatever, to find out what happens 
when consciousness goes really, really wrong in 3D? Pretty bleak. <laughs> I do agree that there was uh, there was an intention to allow the fall, but it was you know it's an experiment, as you say. Yes, consciousness going wrong, but also, you know, the one thing that came through to me clearly was that, you know, even without guidance, even without our gods, to, you know, our our angels, our 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 supporters, you know, in a sense, any any guidance from beyond this dimension, humans have actually been pretty good, if you look at their heart. And you look at how we even when we even when people do bad, they still justify it, right? They still have to give a, a, a just a rational reason for why they do bad. It's rare to get the sociopath who just doesn't care, <laughs> right? I mean that's just that's the fantasy of the serial killer who just has no reason. They're just crazy. Most people when they do something, they have to justify it, which means there is a conscious. Well, I used to say that even right? even Hitler looking in the mirror in the morning felt what he was doing was the right thing. Right. That's right. the there's problem. Conscience. Yeah, there's some heart. So there's, but there is something interesting, I think, in the experiment that's been run, is that they've been looking and they're going, well, even when we cut you guys off from any kind of guidance, you still have some level of conscience. You still have some heart. There's something, you know, there is some sense of love in the human being that, you know, the majority, at least, I don't know, I can't speak for everybody, but it seems to me that most people have love in them. And it's just been walled off by traumas, traumas after traumas after traumas and you know, who knows, nuclear wars on Mars, I mean, <laughs> getting, getting, getting destroyed by, you know, star systems getting evaporated, people being, you know, dispersed from planets. But the idea is that we've been, uh, you know, we've been traumatized even on this planet, right? Slavery and wars and famines and fears and scarcity. And so the trauma is in our systems. The issue now is working that out into a place of letting go of the trauma coming into a new modality, a new realization that, wait a minute, the universe is infinite, which is, a, which is, we are allowed to have the abundance. We are allowed to be okay. We don't have to be in this system of slavery anymore. The system of scarcity and fear of resources and that survival pattern of the animal is not ours anymore. We can step into the new human now. If we, if we accept it, it's there. I believe we are at the, the old system is dying. There's a pause. This is a very necessary moment. A pause. See, that's why saying, this whole – Can we step into it? This whole experience is so interesting, Sean, because it's almost – and we're going to talk a lot more about this in the third hour with Georgia. But it's almost like metaphysically we have been given an extraordinary opportunity to decide which road we want to continue going down. Mm. And there's all kinds yes. of tools provided you can lift the suppression – of the technology, the real science, the real history, who we really are, the fact that you can create technologies that would make um, Arthur Clarke's, remember his old whole line, any sufficiently you know, advanced technologies indistinguishable from magic? Yes. We're dealing with magical technologies which can literally create matter and energy out of well, it looks like in 3D out of nothing. It's not. It's really higher dimensional realities. But the point is, none of this is allowed to be used. And the planet is dying for a variety of reasons. And this may be the break point where these alternatives, including how we define a basic human life, is up for grabs. All new things can be moved into this because people are so desperate, they'll open their eyes and ears to anything that will give them realistic hope. Well, 
hopefully, yeah, that's that's a great time for the con artists and the hucksters to come in. But yeah, well, uh, that's just noise. That's the usual stuff. Okay, the yeah. real stuff will take precedence. For instance, uh, we're, we've been looking at resonance therapies, which literally can solve this virus problem just like that, mm. because there's a track record. It just has not been allowed to be published in any mainstream medical or academic journal. Doesn't sure. mean it's not sure. there. No, no, I'm very, I mean, I'm very keen on the idea of light and sound, I think are the healing tools of the future. That's why, you know, I say, forget about med, you know, most doctors and scientists, what they're giving you is, is what they've learned, which is wrote uh, mechanistic approaches to the body. And there, you know, there, yes, there are good doctors and scientists, but I'm saying that the, the school system itself is so flawed. That we're not at that level of recognizing, as you're saying, it's, it's about resonance. It's about, I mean, look, the fact that they're rolling out 5G, this is terrifying to me that this is being done so brazenly. I think this has much more to do with the Corona thing than people realize. Uh, I don't know what's your take on this, but the fifth generation of, of uh, EMF tech, because you, we're, we're artificially altering the entire electromagnetic landscape of this planet. And the fact, you know, they're, they just announced FCC is going to approve another million um, uh, towers, you know, 5G towers in America. Uh, they're launching satellites. But we're literally, I mean, we're, we're irradiating the planet with this, with these EMF frequencies that are, again, I mean, it's, it's debatable how dangerous, but I can tell you one thing. I didn't, you know, I was told in the nineties as a kid, don't hold a cell phone to your head. And now people have forgotten that. And they, you know, they've got it on their person at all times. And mm. they, you know, we've got, we're being doused with all, at all moments with the Wi-Fi frequencies from our routers and, yeah. and every block, every school. I mean, it's insane. Okay. So, that's, that's. You know, that's that's the bad news, okay? Let me tell you the good news. Tell me. Tell do you do you know a gal named Sherry Edwards? <sighs> I don't think so. Okay, she's the pioneer in this whole resonance frequency, bioacoustic sound therapy modality, and has astonishing positive developments going back decades. I mean, decades. People who would be dead, I've had on this show who are now living incredibly happy, productive lives because she saved them. She intervened, not with mm. chemistry, not with drugs, but with tuned frequencies that yes. basically supply the body with things that they are missing. Because ultimately, when you take a, a molecule, when you take a drug, it geometrically and resonantly interacts with your system. That's how it actually functions. It's ultimately all about mm -hmm. frequency. And it was Tesla. Right. Why am I hearing somebody making a Ford Model T in the background? <laughs> We're building a car here. <laughs> anyway, um, so that, that frequency idea is really a silver bullet because it's based on the, the model of how humans and life and organisms really interact with all kinds of other environmental factors in 3D. It's through this resonant dissonance. Why would I try it? Yeah, well, I will. Where can we try it? I will. I, I will. I will put you in touch with Sherry after the show. We'll exchange websites and contacts and all that. And we're working with a team of people who are using these modalities with patients in the field, who of course are terrified, and they're having very positive results. I don't want to get ahead of the story, but they're having very positive results. You know what? We're at the top of the hour. God, this is going too quickly. Sean, hang right there, okay? You got it. Okay. My guest this morning is Sean Stone. If that name sounds a bit familiar, it's because Sean Stone 
is the son of the famous director Oliver Stone. But I've never heard Oliver Stone talk about reality like this. Hyperdimensional, multidimensional, extraterrestrial. We're kind of visitors here because we're on a journey of much broader and more intriguing dimensions. We will continue. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>